This is the Fish Golf Broadcast. If you're new here, leave while you can. If you've listened before and come back for more, they got a name for people like you. That name is called recidivism. Repeat offender! Not a pretty name, is it? Neither is the Fish Golf Broadcast. This episode of the Fish Golf Broadcast, I got one of my favorite people in disc golf to play with, to talk to. Uh, I met him about a decade ago, but he's been playing for significantly longer than that. Huge influence on the game, on other people. The Frizz Whiz, number 100, John Kirkland. John, what you thinking about? Well, you know, as we were getting ready to do this, I was wondering, since it's not video, if my breath were minty fresh enough. And then I was thinking that I just had this... I've just recently switched to a vegan diet, uh-huh. really serious, because I'd like to be around to see my grandkids be able to play disc golf. And uh, one of the side products of being on that diet is you eat a lot of oats for breakfast. Uh-huh. And I had this big breakfast, and then I was thinking, I'm going to come over here and do a cast with you, and I want my teeth to be clean, so I brush my teeth, and all this stuff comes out. Turns out, actually, it's a pretty good idea to brush your teeth <laughs> after you eat. I mean, they've been everybody tells you that, but... It, it apparently it's taken me 77 years to learn the lesson and then you water pick and at least as much more stuff comes out so anyhow i'm minty fresh and happy to be here fish you're one of my favorite people in disc golf <laughs> well thank you uh and thank you for that dental health psa <laughs> my daughter's a dentist and by the way get uh, if you can get yourself a female dentist because their hands are smaller that's smart like that's a next level life tip Greg Hosfeld trying to interrupt our talking. How dare he? Speaking of somebody who likes to talk about <laughs> about Frisbee. <laughs> this is true. <laughs> John, you, you are PDJ number 100. As I understand it, you didn't have to be a triple-digit PDJ number, but you, you know, chose that. In the really early days, this is Ed. Ed was really like a two-trick pony. I mean, really, in some respects. But those tricks were powerful ones. Mm-hmm. When he first joined Whammo in 64, he designed a disc uh, that had ridges that is patentable. So he came up with a patentable thing. Yep. Now, it turned out that those ridges actually slow the disc down, but that doesn't really matter. He also came up with the idea of uh, an association to bring together disc players, you know, like joining the Mickey Mouse Club or something. And it Some, was sometimes the, they're equivalent, yeah. well, as, as well run. Yeah. So he came up with this International Frisbee Association. And if you, you bought a disc and you put in 50 cents and filled out a little card and you could send it back to Wyoming, you'd join the IFA. Sure. I did that back in the mid-60s. Later, when he decided to quit working for Wyoming because he saw another opportunity, disc golf, he started the PDGA, which is another association that you join. You know, that, that's a great idea. Mm-hmm. And when he created the International Frisbee Association, there's three or 400,000 members, and it slowly died out. But I was number 100 in that. That's another story how I got the number 100, but we don't need to go into that now. <laughs> but when he, so he calls me up. It's 77. I'm the world Frisbee golf champion. The first championship that had baskets mm-hmm. La Mirada and Oak Grove and uh, that was a good tournament I won by nine or something anyhow <laughs> I'm, so I'm the current world champion and he calls me up 
uh, hey, I got a new thing going. You want to get it on? Of course. And he says, well, what number do you want? And I said, well, you're one. I'll take two. And he says, Victor has two. And I said, that rat bastard. Because <laughs> he was my partner with the Globetrotters <laughs> right, and all sure. that. And he, really, I was just kind of kidding with Ed. Uh, and it makes sense, actually, because I think Ed's mind was officially blown by Victor earlier in his life, as was my mind blown by Victor. So Victor deserves number 002, no question about it. Stork deserves 003. Joe Cahal deserves 004. As soon as he said that, I went, okay. A light went off in my head. I said, number 100, because I'm IFA number 100. And if I told you the whole story about how I was IFA 100, it would make sense. But he essentially had given me that number because he held it out. He held it out special. I'm putting aside 100. Mm -hmm. And I had sent in my money and never heard back. Actually, when Stork took over for him and started running uh, all of the IFA stuff and all of, all of the Frisbee-related stuff, he came into this room and there was just a room full of return discs that were supposed to be sent back, IFA applications that never got filled out anyhow. I complained about this to Steady Eric early <laughs> on in my career, and he says, we've got number 100 saved just for you. So because of that little interaction... Uh, I thought 100 would be really cool. And did he understand the callback quickly when oh, you no. asked for 100? Oh, he, oh, he got that instantly because we went <laughs> through a thing. I'm in yeah. his office. I had just given him a Frisbee pie tin. He had never seen a Frisbee pie tin. They, they didn't know anything about Frisbee pie tins. This is 73. And, uh, and he sort of owed me. The question is, is that uh, he, ha he had lost face with me. Sure. So he regained the face by offering me anything that was in the this big wall of fame that he had and i chose like one of the really uh, prototype pro yeah and he gave me number 100 so now we're even kind of thing but so he got instantly that i wanted number 100 people say well what would you have gotten if you just said give me the next number in the chain and i tried to figure it out i think i would have been five or something it doesn't matter i would rather have 100 because of this story mm -hmm. it's good that there's that particular meaning to you and it's cool that at that time you could select your own number uh he it, didn't call a lot of people up i had uh, the feeling yeah <laughs> uh, but there are a lot of people who just didn't want to pay the ten dollars or something sure who you know a lot of people who you know who knew it was going to get to be a big deal like i said if i had to do over i would have still chosen 100 did did you ever buy a lifetime membership i should have done that years ago for two thousand dollars he said comes with a lifetime membership now it turns out that that changed, and they now make it, you get to keep your number forever, uh -huh. but you still have to pay dues every year. You get to keep your original number. Supposedly, I was never going to have to pay a nickel for it, but you know who knew it was going to get to be a big deal? Ed had no idea. <laughs> um, now, as I understand it, you're, you're somebody who, when you look on that wall, you know what you're looking at. A uh, big collector of stuff. You know, this was 1973, and I had just uh, come from the the International Frisbee Tournament, a big gathering of guts players in the Upper Peninsula in, okay. in Michigan every summer. Actually, they put it off that year to Labor Day because of possible fire danger. And so I had met a whole bunch of people, Victor and all these folks, uh, Ed Hedrick and all these guys, and they said, hey, come to California. So I went to California. And I stayed with Roger Barrett, who was one of the original, he and Victor were really good friends, one of the original Berkeley pod. They had a very, very good, they had the most advanced 
frisbee pod uh, there that, at that that existed at that time, mm -hmm. and I stayed with Roger, and he had a disc collection, and I had started playing back in 1957, the first year that that Whammo released discs, and uh, they they made the Pluto platter. I still remember that bright sunny day in North Carolina, brilliant blue sky and a green Pluto platter. Just drifting away. <laughs> Almost chokes me up, really. I, I understand. Like, that, that is such a universal feeling to, you know, to throw and catch, to make it dance in the air. Like, I kind of, if I quit disc golf tomorrow, I think it would be okay. But if I had to never throw a Frisbee again and watch the flight, that would hurt. That would hurt a lot. Yeah, I think it was Cray Van Sickle that said, when you throw a Frisbee, you, a little bit of your soul goes along with it. <laughs> uh, that's a really good uh, analogy. You've thrown a lot of bits of your soul away then, huh? Uh, you know, Stork and I were talking about how many throws have we thrown? And this was a couple of years ago, but yeah. three million plus. Uh, and then I was talking to Ted Nalen. You met Ted. He's a great guy. Yeah. Uh, he... Uh, he said, how many catches have you had? You know? <laughs> and then you think of all those times when you throw it up to yourself and catch it and do tricks when you're in the freestyle. Sure. In the old days, everyone did all events. Disc golf, great event. Maximum time aloft, just as cool of an event. You got to mm -hmm. throw this perfect edge control up there and then run really fast, gauge it, read the wind, catch it in one hand. Marvelous fun. As a matter of fact, all of the disc events, I suspect, the disc golfers who really enjoy when they get to that level where they're now able to visualize a flight path, a trajectory, and then hit it, would enjoy a lot of other frisbee games. Sure, M MTA throw, run, catch. This uh, double disc court, which is really my favorite of mm -hmm. all the disc sports, uh, two-person uh, game where you you have two courts and each team has two discs in it, and they're light, and so you really have to. There are more throws in, in DDC than, you know, what's the old expression? The, the universe is not only stranger than you suppose, it's stranger than you can suppose. <laughs> you know, that's, that's, that's the thing with DDC. There are throws that you never would have thought of. Throws that start off with high speed and low spin. They're called fractals. And they fly straight for a while and they blow, they blow up. They go from laminar to turbulent flow, and they flip upside down right in front of the guy who's trying to catch them. Uh, wonderful things you can do. So there, anyhow, I'm, I'm at Roger's house, and he's introducing me to all of his collection. And he's got 350 discs. And it wasn't until later that I figured out he got me interested in collecting so that he could sell me his collection. Which he did. <laughs> what a trap. <laughs> I instantly had the largest Frisbee collection in the world when I left California. And so when I went back to, uh, back to school, I was in MIT at the time in Boston. and Oh, laminar and turbulent flow, huh? <laughs> that's about all I learned at MIT, uh, <laughs> yeah. other than I met my wife. So, you know, somebody says, what's the greatest thing that ever happened to you? Is I would say, go to MIT, because it got me back into Frisbee, met my wife. Uh, and learned about laminar and turbulent flow. But I had somebody came out and interviewed me, probably just because I was an MIT guy doing something cool with grandma's pie plate, you know. Yeah. And I mentioned that I had the largest collection in the world. So the guy that owned Wiffle Discs read that, 
gave me a pie tin. I took the pie tin when I went down and visited Wamo because Roger had told me, hey, you should, with your enthusiasm, you should go around and see everybody who plays Frisbee. So I, I made it my task at that point to go out and see everybody who played. So I went down to one, actually I drove down and I went to uh, Laguna Beach, which just had another group of great players. Uh, John Mortimer played there, 005. He ended up getting number five. Uh, Tom Baudet, Spider Wills. They all had totally, Spider Wills was an ex-paratrooper. Hung out with Timothy Leary a lot. Uh, awesome. <laughs> yeah, th th these were the days, you know. This was, the world was new. Uh, the, the hippies were right at that time. You know, we went stop the war. We were, we were getting high. The world had, you know, we had just come out of the, the 50s and 60s with all the killing of the people in the 60s and the conservatism of the 50s and the 70s were like this new hope. And Frisbee was poised to become an emblem of that growth. And so I went all around the country and I met everybody. Went to Rutgers and hung out with Dan the Stork Roddick, showed him how to do an air bounce. Uh, went up to New York, went to Chicago. Anyhow, I went around and met all these people. And the communication among people, really all you have to do is find out there are other people that do this. Yeah. I kind of did that. And then uh, I was back at school and I did a halftime for the uh, Boston Celtics. Actually, I did MIT halftimes, a few basketball halftimes. Mm -hmm. I said, this is really fun. You're indoors, it's cold. And, Get, and you're doing like a freestyle exhibition. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah with Doug McRae uh, and another MIT brilliant guy graduates from MIT at 20. Anyhow, there's just so many cool people there. But they didn't have a lot of athletes, so I kind of, you know, I was like <laughs> the only, you know, athlete really there who was making a name for himself. And uh, I thought to myself, then I did the Celtics halftimes, and I thought, you know, it's just a drag that there aren't more basketball games, because, you know, I don't want to travel around just to go to the halftimes for these basketball. And then I Ding, you know, one of those proverbial lights going off, and I thought, the Globetrotters. <laughs> wow, I could just play indoors all the time and during the winter. And so I called them up, and they said... What, what's it like cold calling the Harlem Globetrotters? Well, how, do you even get, how do you even get through to anybody? You know, that's the <laughs> you, thing. You can't Google it. <laughs> yeah, to know somebody. Yeah, there's no, there are no computers at the time. Although, I was in 1972, 4 o'clock in the morning, present for the first communication, first game played between two computers. I watched it, Space War. Just a little spaceship that you could turn and you could make fly and you could shoot. Another one would come on the screen from a computer in another building. Mm -hmm. Wow. I was taking this, this course in uh, programming of small-scale computers. A small-scale scale computer at the time was a, a room. big thing. <laughs> and, I, and I remember at the end of that course, the professor mentioned that he had gotten a PDP 11 from his wife for a Christmas present. And I said, what would you need a computer at home for? <laughs> I was very forward seeing at that point. So anyhow, we got the gig with the Globetrotters and that sort of took my going around and seeing the various people to 200 cities in 180 days. And now, it, you know, everybody's a hero in their own movie. But when I look back on it, I see that time as being a seminal coming together, a burgeoning of enthusiasm, 
and enlightenment in the Frisbee, where all of a sudden, Frisbee's a thing. All these, you, you get 10, 20,000 people seeing you every night. After a while, I mean, Tom Monroe, rest his soul, we'll miss him, came to, to, to one of those shows, and he liked it so much, he came to another one, and he went backstage, and we played a bunch. Uh, all the Rochester people, uh, as a matter of fact, uh, I know I've mentioned this before on another podcast, so I apologize to those who are hearing yet another repeat, but some of those shows really stick out. There was one of them uh, where Ed Hedrick and all the New Yorkers and a whole bunch of people came to Madison Square Garden in, uh, in February of 75, and it was a really good show, yeah. one of those excellent shows. That one of the things is I, when I came running out, I threw big bomb way up in the rafters. I mean, air conditioners. And we, we were doing the pregame show, okay? So they'd okay. seen nothing. And a bunch of bored New Yorkers, they're reading the post or whatever. And they're not expecting anything. And this Frisbee goes flying over their heads. I had no, this only time I had, had ever done this, it was just a spark. We usually, we have a totally set routine. Yeah. He's out there running and might have been due to some artificial stimulation I received right before I went out, but I... Like uh, caffeine? Yeah, 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 we'll go with that. <laughs> uh, and just bombed it up there, hard as I could throw it. It went past everybody, and then it just came floating down, floating down, swished through the basket, and Victor's standing under it. 25,000 people go to their feet. I'm telling you, I get goosebumps right now remembering it. That's, that's a shot that you can execute with zero thought, but as soon as you start thinking about doing it, it's in the stands. It's you in know, the fourth row. I'm glad you brought that up because like we touched on the other day, uh, in the, in, it's funny because it's like what goes around comes around. Yeah. Uh, if I'm talking about Frisbee, it's an offhanded remark. <laughs> Sorry. It's uh, terrible. <laughs> yeah. When I talked about Frisbee in the early days, and that first newspaper article, the Christian Science Monitor that I mentioned after coming back from IFT, uh, all I talked about was zen and flow and getting out of your mind. I guess when you're going to school, you're in your, in your thinking mind a lot. And you still need your thinking mind to get through, you know, no bridges. I mean, it's, it's a necessary part. It's a necessary part of disc golf. Mm -hmm. uh, you have to figure out how far away you are, what's the wind doing, what's my altitude, what have I been doing, what have a, what's my miss being today? All those thoughts need to come to your mind, but there comes a point at which you then turn those off and you go into the execution phase in your pre-shot routine. And the way I usually think about it is, is you want to get into that Zen state. And like I was saying to you yesterday, uh, I, I picture time as moving from the past to the future. And it's usually this really thin little slice, and you're spending a lot of your time remembering, and you're spending a lot of time forecasting and projecting what you're going to do. Well, I got to go there. I got to go over and meet fish, so we can do a podcast. You know, then I got to. You know, we're going to do. And it turns out we live most of our life in what are we doing? What are we? Where are we going? But all the magic happens when we're not lost in that. When we're, for some reason or another, we're playing catch, we're making love, we're it can happen at strange places. You've never bowled before, but you throw three or four balls, balls, and all of a sudden, wow, that, what was that? And all of those peak performance moments, as, as, as Maslow would call them, uh, happen because you have taken some 
of what you've learned from the past, so there is past, and you are projecting what you want to happen, so there is future. You've seen what you, you know, you, like you watch McBeast go up to the front of the T and he's pointing that disc. I don't know what's going through his mind, but just from my point of view, he's saying, I'm starting that disc right there at that tree at that angle. So now he is programming the future into his brain. Mm -hmm. And now he takes that 10,000 hours or 100,000 hours, million throws of past and married with that extremely strong visualization of trajectory. And that little skinny now becomes a fat now. It's vibrating, it gets fat. And I suppose enlightenment is that fat now takes over your life. <laughs> but it's enough for me just to have it every time I throw. And anytime I don't throw well, it's because I wasn't in that fat now. If I'm in that fat now, I'm happy with whatever happens. Hits tree, whatever. But if I do what I visualized, even if what I visualized was wrong, that's why we keep playing. We don't give it a name. We, we get lost in the, I gotta have the wins, I want my rating to go up, and all that talk. You know, you gotta have the talk to get you from here to there and get through your life. You gotta have that. It's not like you wanna do away with that. It's just that you would like to be able to spend a lot of time in the fat now where all that talk is in service to you rather than leading you into fear because you're caught in the past or in the future. The fear is in the future or anger like you're, you're caught in thoughts of the past. So it's basically, the fat now is basically a mindfulness moment. That's the, the, the old Quran way of talking about being in the now, being in the flow. The quarterbacks talk about it. So that's why we play Frisbee. That's the real reason we play Frisbee. <laughs>
paper ball and it just goes right in. At that moment, there was no thought, just like he was saying that shot that went in the, to Victor through the basket. There was, I was just, you get out of the normal way of thinking and you, and, and, and you totally are as one with whatever it is you're trying to do. And in a disc golf shot, whenever I have a student, you know, you tell them you should hold the disc here and you should stay with your knees bent and you should follow through. As my son Cody, who's overall world champion, frisbee player, great, someone I, I listen to, <laughs> the child is father to the man. He says, you need a good brace, you need, a good, you need to finish the backswing and you need to follow through. So in a pre-shot routine, I say, you got that talking to yourself part, which is can be no time at all if you're in you're in the bullseye. Your thought is, you know, don't trip over your own feet and put it in the basket. <laughs> or you've got a 30-footer uphill at altitude. You know, now you gotta, you know, you gotta go through some some thought. But once you have figured out the the visualization, the trajectory that you the overall like Jack Nicholas used to play movies in his mind before he'd hit it. It took him 42 seconds. He'd play this movie, he'd, he'd see himself, he'd feel himself, not just see it, it's not just visual. It's the whole experience. He'd feel what it feels like to take it back, get to the bottom, continue looking down until the shoulder brings him up, seeing the ball going up there, hit, bounce, bounce. I suspect that's what Paul and Ricky and Calvin and all these great players do is that at some point, in their pre-shot routine, they're finding that visualization. They've done it before, they see it, they're in it. Now they've already thrown. It's like, I've, I've had this idea sometimes, but I always forget to do it, that before I make a putt, I should sort of see myself kind of quitting on it and watching it bounce off the rims. Oh man, you've got to get them up. <laughs> Hardly any of the low ones go in. And then you see yourself kind of getting carried away and banging it against the band and you think, okay, this is just in your head and you say, okay, I'm right in the middle now. I'm going to do it. Now I've if you can get through that visualization, you are nowhere except right in that fat now. And now your chances of making it are great, but that, it takes some energy to get to that place. But when you're in that place, once you have chosen the, the, the feel and the visualization of the exact thing you're gonna do, then you step up to the T and now it should take exactly the same amount of time. Tiger takes 19.2 seconds to putt. It should take the same amount of time every time. Now there's no thought. You've seen it, now you just are in it. Just do it. Don't second guess yourself. You get, get ready to go and you have some other thought and it takes you out of it. Take a deep breath, which you should have done anyhow. <laughs> Take another deep breath, step back, see where you want it to go. Anyhow, I, I'm sure you knew all this because you're a great golfer, but it's, it's the stuff that occupies me now since I can't throw hard anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, there's a difference between knowing it and applying it over and over because you know when i go into my basement and i grab a stack of putters i'm gonna make all of them from nine meters sure that's indoors it's flat there's no wind but i'm gonna do it without thinking at all and as soon as i get up to you know my first practice putt at nine meters it feels weird it feels different. It feels like there's stakes on it. And then that same putt on the first hole or last hole of a tournament, you know, I, I can say, yeah, I have a routine or yeah, I can do a visualization exercise, but being able to apply it 
over and over and over without it getting boring, without it becoming stale, where the cues that, that worked one time or worked for a day, it's hard to find cues that are like durable enough and interesting enough that they can keep you occupied. Yeah, those are what I call wood keys. Works only one day. <laughs> you know, there are a lot of little keys like that. And the, the problem with those things is you're being in your mind now thinking. You're not in the action of doing it. When you're in the action of making a good putt, you're in a timeless place. That never gets boring. It, you know, it's being in that place where they're going in. Now, the preparation getting out of that and going back in, that can be, uh, this is the same old, the thought, I'm doing the same old thing. But that thought is not part of the putt. That thought is taking you out of the putt. You have to do, and you can change them, whatever it is that, you know, they talk about a lot about this in ball golf. Uh, there's a book, The Zen of Golf. I mean, people, athletics, all the time, Sports psychologists are dealing with just what you said. Mm -hmm. How do you keep it? How do you keep the pre-shot routine fresh? You don't have to keep the experience of doing something well fresh. That's the reason you're doing <laughs> it's it. It's its own reward. It's its own reward. <laughs> but you can, you can do whatever you can to make it fresh. Sports psychologists have all sorts of tricks. You know, you can have little tricks to quiet your mind. Little things you can say, like in in ball golf, they'll you should. You can sing a little thing like zut, zut. That's, you know, something that they talk about in golf all the time is tempo. And what they're really talking about is the ability to accelerate smoothly. What good throwers and good putters do is they accelerate smoothly. They don't get jerky. They have good tempo. And you don't like jerky? <laughs> Eric Gerthy's not going to like that. I'm, I'm a vegan, so they had some <laughs> vegan jerky for a while. It is weird to go vegan. It's like I've lost four pounds in four or five days just because you've got to eat a lot of food if you're not <laughs> taking any fat and any protein in. But uh, I mean, you're getting protein. Anyhow, that's another talk. I'm not So, so smooth acceleration. Smooth. Just call it tempo. Tempo is smooth acceleration. And when you've got smooth acceleration... Some people will tell you, don't try to throw it so hard. And all, everything links up. And sometimes you've just got your links. The kinetic linking between everything's working perfectly. And, you know, that's uh, smooth is slow and slow is fast. And that whole thing. Uh, or s smooth is slow. No, slow is smooth S and smooth is fast. Smooth is far. Smooth is far. There you go. Um, Thank you for getting me back on that. But that I yeah. <laughs> well, that little hoyeristic, it it's like vaguely true, but you can kind of circular logic your way into slow, smooth, fast, far. Like introduce other adjectives into this. All of those are 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 good, useful cues that kind of distract your thinking brain, so that you can just let the you know, the visualized part take over. Right. If you need, if, if that little thinker that we all have, the little ego in there, the little imaginary person that's inside our brain that doesn't actually exist, it's just a fig newton of our imagination. Uh, if that little person is bringing up, oh man, if I miss this one, I'm screwed. 
The last time I had this putt, I gagged it. I'm not putting any of that negative crap that comes up for everyone. Comes up for Clamo, comes up for Paul, comes up for everybody, comes up for Tiger. They all get it. No one's immune from that. The trick is figuring out a way to, to shut it up. You only need about two and a half seconds for it to shut up. Lee Trevino, great ball golfer, he only... He would just chatterbox, chatterbox. He'd almost chatterbox, and he stepped right up to the ball. Now he goes into like a six-second thing. Bang, he's in the bubble. You know, uh, in, uh, clear the mechanism, as, as uh, Kevin Costner said in a baseball movie. You've got to find something to clear the mechanism. Now you're on, oh, I'm back in my place. You don't even say that. You just are back in your place. You feel, mm -hmm. I'm back in, here I am again. But you don't even say that. I, it's my, my mind is saying that about, I'm describing it, but when you're actually in it, this, you might even have that thought, here I am again, and that's what gets you into it, or now it's time to clear the mechanism, or in ball golf, they'll say, say to yourself as you're taking it back, back, hit, and you get used to saying back, hit, and that gets your tempo set. So even if you're in your thinking mind, at least you've got good tempo. You're mm -hmm. not getting too quick. You're not, you know, you're doing whatever you can to, Sometimes that now is real fat and sometimes it's real skinny. But that's the game we've chosen, is how to get back into that flow. So I, I was reading a book a little bit ago, and it's kind of a meta book about books about happiness. And the premise of the book is that why, why are there so many books about happiness if clearly people aren't happy, then we haven't solved the problem. And this, like, this culture of expecting that you're supposed to be happy or that there's a quick fix to it. This sounds an awful lot like the you know, mindfulness or presence of expanding that small now into a fat now. You know, my daughter, Tabitha, my firstborn, uh, is a professor at University of Washington. Okay. She teaches happiness. And I talk about this stuff all the time with her. <clears throat> Mindfulness. She also teaches yoga and uh, is trying to bring these mindfulness things into her own life. And really, that's what happiness is, is the more mindful, the, the less you're caught up in worry, anger, any of the things that take you out of the now, the happier you are. I mean, I, I don't pretend to know what happiness is, but if, if I had to guess, it's having a whole lot of fat nows <laughs> in spite of reasons to not have them. Some people just naturally have a way with the words and others not have way. <laughs> no, some people naturally go through life and they just kind of see the bright side of things. And other people are always looking for the tragedy. Learn... The trick is to figure out how to enjoy whatever it is you're doing, whether it's this talk with you. I mean, I'm driving over here and a part of me is thinking, I, I got to talk and people are going to listen to me. And I, you know, can I, you know, all that crap. And I, I've done enough of these and I just say, I'm just going to go shoot the bull with a buddy and whatever comes out, comes out. You got to do that with everything in your life. Whenever a thought comes up that wants to, to make you unhappy or to take you out of the moment, we exist as humans in this evolved state because our ancestors paid attention to the bad stuff that happened. We need 
that little talk. We need that little <laughs> voice that says, uh, you know, you sure you want to do that? That's a good thing. I'm not saying you don't want that. I'm just saying it makes a great slave and a terrible master. You don't need that a whole lot at a very sanitized supermarket. You definitely <laughs> need that if, uh, if bears are out there. Right. If, I, I often said if there's not a saber-toothed tiger at the door, you probably are doing pretty well. <laughs> you know? Have, have you ever experienced that? <laughs> well, you know, I, I think about millennials and, and, the, and the generation that's alive now, the fresh people, that, you know, the new... I can't alphas? Keep, alphas. Sure, I can't alphas, keep track of them. The, the newest generation. Uh, and did they grow up with war? Did they grow up with poverty? Did they grow up with pestilence? Did they grow up with, I mean, just the world is in a, no matter what state you think the world is in right now, we are in an exponentially better place than we've ever been by leaps and bounds. But you don't tend to notice it. It's like you go on to Hawaii for a trip, and you have all these unbelievable moments. But if the hotel overcharged you, or they, I don't lost your bags. And so, how was the trip? I had a good time, but the airline lost my bags. The, the invitation for the outrage machine. We have been programmed, and it's necessary to look for the bad stuff. Yeah. You overlook all the great stuff. Well, part of happiness, I'm convinced, is part of somehow. Figuring out a little trick, whenever you start to give yourself crap in your own head, you're introducing fear where there's nothing actually there to threaten you, or you're introducing anger when you're in a car and somebody does something you didn't like, and you're not really threatened. All these little emotional cues that were so necessary to our Pleistocene consciousness development, and now we've got to marry that somehow with AI and... You know, that's why we have such a huge political divide right now. People, a lot of people just don't want to make the effort to stay current, and they just get caught in whatever they've been told. Other people are willing to kind of keep changing their mind. Okay, I'm, gonna, I'm willing to look at maybe the world's not exactly like I've been told. Having the ability to constantly look at the world in new ways is very tiring for some people, and it can be... We fall into these habits of just doing things the same way every day, but I'm now convinced that you've got to build in a sort of a little catch that says whenever you start to go down that negative road, I'm getting ready to make a putt, and I'm, some thought comes over me, I can just say to myself something to get into the fat now, something like, I understand, but this one's going to be okay. Whatever you have to say at the time, now, the really good athletes, the Tigers and Jacks and Pauls and those people, they have figured out how to do their exact motion from repetition, from that 100,000 times of doing it so well that they can even have little thoughts kind of going on, but they, just, they make it exactly the same time to execute, and your body knows how to do it, even if they're up, up top they're saying, whoa, so get that pre-shot routine execution part down to a tenth of a second. Do the exact same thing if you can. That's why if you don't usually putt from your knee, get down there and get a pre-shot routine from putting from your knee. Get that, that reverse backhand, it's Julianne likes to go, it's you know, like patent pending for some reason, 
whatever the motion is, do a lot of that so that under pressure, your body knows how to do it anyhow. Make that execution phase as repetitive as possible. Get into that fat now as often as possible. All right. I think that's a really good place to, to end this. John, thank you so much for sharing your time, sharing your... It, we never have the same conversation. It always feels like you're, you're iterating on something previous, that, that you've previously thought about. Um, I really appreciate that. That's something I hope to emulate in my thoughts about golf and perspectives. Um, and, and speaking for myself, you know, you were a little bit maybe uncomfortable about people hearing us just talk. That's what I want this podcast to be. Like, it's kind of like this is what we would be talking about anyway. It's, I think it's interesting, and I, I imagine there are other people who, who do also. Much love to my fellow discotarians. I enjoyed <laughs> it. Always a pleasure, my friend. Well, there you go. Thank you for, uh, for listening to this episode of the Fish Golf Broadcast. Uh, if you really like the show and want to lavishly compliment me, you can find me on uh, Instagram and whatever the fuck Twitter is at fish58320. John, do you want people to contact you if they hated the show? You know, uh, if I could turn people on to anything at all, it would be to my brother-in-law, Coach Chris Taylor, who is just a marvel. He knows what's going on, doesn't charge a penny for it. And uh, I'm staying with him right now and my sister, and we're having such a good time. And he's a disc golf, disc golf treasure. All right, there you go. Coach Chris Taylor uh, on Instagram. All right, John, thank you so much. That's a wrap on this week's Fish Golf Broadcast. Join us next week to fritter away more of your ever-waning life force on two jabronis talking about Frisbee. Please support the show, if you're able, by shopping for fish stuff at fishdiscgolf.com, Daddy Disc Golf, Disc Hub, Tree Magnets, and Disc Golf Bras websites. You can still save 10% at Grip Equipment with the code FISHGIFT10, and please tell a friend about this show. Unless you don't have any friends, but that's your problem, not mine.